0: It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes.
1: Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting our little podcast experience. We're going to hear from a fellow meningitis survivor with a, an incredible story of survival and recovery and really taking advocacy to a whole new level. Her name is Jamie Shanbaum. And her story and mine have a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. And I'm really interested to getting into those with her. So, Jamie, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast.
0: Yes, thank you. Super happy to be here.
1: I think we have a lot of things in common, but I'd like to know if you would uh, if you would share your meningitis story with, with us.
0: Yeah, so my meningitis story started about... I would say 12 years ago in 2008, I was a college student, you know, what I thought to be thriving, you know, in my prime. And Yes,
1: yes, I can relate to that.
0: And, you know, just thinking so invincibly. Those are the good days. Those are good days. The good days, you know, hangovers were nothing. And, you know, you could just eat anything, metabolism, you know, so good. Mm -hmm. You know, the good days. The best. And, you know. The last thing that we're thinking about is taking care of ourselves. Last thing, right? Yeah, I
1: was ten feet tall and bulletproof myself at that (laughs) point.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I walked on the college campus unvaccinated, not knowing that I should be vaccinated, and unfortunately, almost died. I was in the hospital for about seven months. Jaw-dropping moment, and. Got out of the hospital and I was a full-on amputee of all my fingers and both of my legs below the knee. Um, Talk about a life-changing experience. I didn't know anything. Right. I didn't know anything about this disease and this is the way I had to learn about it. Um, So now I'm an advocate because I don't want anyone to learn it or learn the hard way about this disease. So what I always say is to step one, talk to your doctor that's the best source of information you know there are a lot there's a lot of misinformation out there nowadays now that's 2021 and but always talk to your doctor is the best source or medical professional journals i don't know it's hard <laughs> but yeah definitely talk to your doctor but the gist is is that there's two different vaccines you get one when you're uh in middle school and then you get your second one right before college and i just never got that second one before college And because it wasn't really required in my in my state. And fortunately, I did change that. In 2009, I passed a law called the Jamie Shambom Act, which was cool because I was never really good in government. It wasn't my strength. So just to see a law in my name was pretty amazing. Yeah, And And basically, it covered all students living in public and private facilities. So that was like dorm rooms. But I lived off campus and by myself. And here's the thing. I'm sure you talked about it before. And that's why meningitis is more common in in college atmospheres because of our social behaviors. You know, we're sharing drinks. We're, you know, basically sharing saliva. And that's how it's passed on, just by uh, secretion. So uh, what is this? Like saliva secretion droplets, right? Yeah, that sounds good. And yeah, that sounds professional. And yeah, so just in college, we're just like not sharing, we're not, we are sharing a lot of things. We're not washing our hands. And I was definitely doing all of those things, Mm -hmm. you know, feeling so invincible. And you just, I had no idea about this disease. And as you and I are here today, we are very blessed to be alive. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are unlucky to not survive this disease. The statistics say that one out of 10 that get meningitis will die. From this disease, and those who do get meningitis, one out of five will have long-term consequences, and that's us, buddy. We, yeah that that I, even
1: that even seems low to me. One out of five that would have long-term consequences It seems like it would be higher than that. But I'm not questioning you. I just um, I know it's it's just surprising information.
0: Yeah. But yeah, ever since I got sick with meningitis, I've definitely been well versed in it and became an advocate and been blessed to have some wonderful speaking platforms and I think my story's been well heard over millions of times over at least our nation who know definitely a little bit internationally but
1: you know, yeah you've definitely made, made, made your rounds but I want to back up a little bit you kind of went real fast through the seven oh, months in the hospital thing so I don't need like real specific things but tell me like how did you get to the hospital when did you know you needed yeah. to go to the hospital or what was this what was the signs then?
0: When I got sick with meningitis, I was at a friend's house doing laundry because that's what happens when you're in college. You borrow your friend's laundry machine. Yeah. So I'm over there and socializing and I just wasn't feeling well. It was around 8 p.m. And I asked to take a nap, which led to me sleeping there the whole night. And uh, I started to become sick and vomiting. And I noticed that when I would go to the bathroom to relieve myself, excuse me, um, But when I would touch the toilet handle to flush or when I would touch the faucets to wash my hands, my hands were really sensitive. I didn't understand why. Same thing with my feet on the tile. They were sensitive um, to like the cold tiles. Mm -hmm. I don't think anything of it. So what was technically happening is that I had meningococcal septicemia and septicemia means your blood is toxic. And so for me, Basically, my body was in emergency shutdown mode, and they're like, whoa, your body is toxic. We have to protect these organs, which is why my hands were sensitive, because there was no blood flow. Of course, I'm not like, oh my god, my body is coming down with meningitis. I was just like, oh, this. I'm not feeling well, so I'm going to go back to bed. And so the next morning, I decided to go back to my place and I was not looking great. I'm going to be honest. I was definitely in the bathroom a lot and didn't know what was happening. Didn't know how serious it was. I, was, I wasn't walking like one, two, three, four. I'm walking like one and holding myself up against the walls Two like really slow steps, really heavy weighted steps and I was starting to really contemplate or realize that this is serious. This is definitely not like a regular sickness. This is something I've never dealt with before. And of course I wasn't proactive on taking care of myself. <laughs> so but you yeah, know there's some intervi- uh what is what do they say? divine intervention mm-hmm. out there. And my sister was going to the same university as me and she offered me a ride to school so she called me and was like hey do you need a ride to school and like normal sisters do i didn't answer her call (laughs) i just left it ringing um but then she sent me a text and the text said do you need a ride to school and i said i think i need to go to the hospital Mm -hmm. and she came over and i wasn't like i was like opening the door like hey thank you for coming over i was I left it unlocked and I was collapsed on the ground. I was, I was awake and I was there mentally there, but like my body was just weighted. Like it was awful. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, it happened really fast. I think I was in a medicated coma within a couple of hours from there because the hospital was about five minute drive, like really, really close. And your sister took you? Yeah, my sister took me, they, I remember, the one of the last things that I remember was they're putting me on, like, the the bed, and I was shivering down on my bones, I was in fetal position, I was super cold, I remember asking for, like, shots of warmth, like, chicken noodle soup and a shot into my body, because <laughs> <laughs> I was just so yeah. cold, mm-hmm. I didn't understand, but I'm actually kind of curious about, like, what it was like for you, also, um, like, when it, how, was your coming down story with meningitis?
1: Well, it's a little similar. I was, so I was in college also and I was living off campus as well. I had two roommates. For me, the story was somewhat similar in the sense that I felt, I felt bad probably about 24 hours. I started kind of feeling bad before I was uh, actually probably about 36 hours before I went to the hospital but I felt like I had a flu or like a severe sinus infection. And I can remember going to bed two nights before I went to the hospital, feeling like I just wasn't, it was a Thursday night. I had a a test the next day. I did a little bit of studying, took some medicine, went to bed, woke up really early Friday morning. And I was, I was vomiting profusely. I was, it was, Mm. it was a bad scene. Yeah. And looking back at it, it's a it's a sickness that I had never known. I was uh, f- I felt like I had kind of like vertigo, my head was spinning and I couldn't I really couldn't stand. Um, I think mm. I had I think I was physically strong enough to stand but the my head was like the everything was spinning. And I was basically crawling on my hands and knees through my apartment back and forth from the bathroom because I was getting sick. And yeah. yeah. I Very similar. I made it back to the bed. At some point and I I called my parents because it was for me it was in the month of February and it's kind of like flu or flu season and I, I know my parents had just had the flu. They're about two hundred miles away from me. So it's not real real close, but not real far, but I called them, I said, Yeah, I'm not it was probably like six AM. I'm not feeling really well and yeah, it's probably a flu thing. Just get some sleep, get some rest and you know, we'll check in on you in a little bit. Or a little bit later today, and I go to sleep Friday morning, and I wake up eight days later in the hospital. And crazy. the the crazy thing for me, or the the miraculous event, there's actually a few of them, but the biggest one was my um my I at some point I told my roommates to get out of the apartment because like you guys, I'm pretty sick. You don't want whatever this is, so you know get out of here. Yeah. So they actually spent Not the night. They actually spent the night that 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 next night away, and we had a function going on, a fraternity function going on, about Saturday, and my one of my fraternity brothers was I I, I guess this is before we had cell phones like we do today, and so we had just planned if you can remember what that's like, just telling somebody I'll get to, we'll get together Saturday morning to do something, mm-hmm. and so different times, yeah. <laughs> We had planned to get together Saturday morning, and so he came over to the apartment. By the grace of God, the front door was unlocked. He walked in and found me um, unconscious in my bedroom. Wow! And he called nine one one and by ambulance. I'm at the I'm at the hospital. Um, wow! Initially at the hospital, I, as because I was unconscious, I couldn't couldn't tell what was going on or what I was what was happening. So they originally thought it was a drug overdose for me. Oh yeah. I uh, had yeah. a lot of those types of symptoms, and nothing could have been further from the truth. But yeah. they didn't have any way of really knowing that, so they're running all those normal tests and things. And
0: I've been in that situation before. I had food poisoning, and they thought it was a girl like on drugs. And I was like, I don't even know what's happening to me right now. Someone tell her I'm not on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It's like, please take this seriously. Like, this is you know terrible and deadly. Who knows what's happening?
1: Yeah. So. They eventually they they diagnosed me in in enough time and uh I was I was asleep for about seven days.
0: Wow. Crazy. And when people are in comas, do they just wake up on their own?
1: That's a good question. I don't know. Um you've probably seen um comas on TV, you know, where you just hope we wake up and it's like, Hey, how's it going, everyone? I'm glad to be out of that coma. Jeez, what was that all about? Yeah. Uh, no, for me it was really. There's a lot of in and out. Really, um, it wasn't like a um, like a one minute I'm here, one minute I'm not kind of thing. So I, I really can't describe what it was like coming out of that because it, it it's hard yeah. to describe. But
0: I think I can relate because I was in a semi medicated coma, and I would wake up from time to time and. There's like snippets of memories that I remember during that transitional time. Those first three weeks for me was pretty horrible.
1: Yeah. I was in the hospital for a total of three weeks, twenty one days. You said seven months.
0: Yeah. It was not my hottest. That's a long time. Yeah. It wasn't it was a nightmare, like literally. Like I woke up every day wishing I would wake up from this horrible, horrible reality. But no, that was that was the reality. But yeah, really hard times. At Uh, at what
1: point during that hospital stay did you know what was happening? Did you know it was meningitis?
0: uh, I think semi medicated coma state. I I think I do remember hearing about it in the early on weeks. Because so when I don't even know if I finished the story. So the last thing I remember was so they were like pushing me onto the bed and they were giving me like routine questions, asking me, Blah, 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 putting in IVs inside of me. Mm-hmm. And the doctor looks at my sister and goes, where's your mom? And my mom's like, uh, or my mom, my sister goes, uh, my mom is in South Texas and there's no way she's here. And he looks at her and goes, she needs to be here. Mm-hmm. And, at the, and that that's the last moment I remember. <laughs> it was really, really nice. <laughs> it's like, um, I, it was literally the scariest moment ever. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm laughing about it. I can laugh at it. And, uh, yeah, I remember we, we locked eyes. Our jaws were dropped. And, and then I just remember being, like, gassed. And, like, and then every now and then I would wake up and I would have these horrible memories. I'm not going to go into too much details. But I do remember just waking up and seeing my limbs go from, you know, red rash to purple. on my extremities, red rash to purple to black to, like, literally rotting limbs. Like if yeah it w- it was just really not fun, I felt like I had a thousand pounds of sand in me. I couldn't do anything literally. I was mm-hmm. dependent on nurses to roll me to side to side to prevent bed sores, mm-hmm. and I couldn't even push a button to call a nurse. They actually put this contrap contrapment like that was over my bed like a rainbow arch and right in front of my face was this like little hollow something and I blew into it. And that's how I called my nurses, Mm. you know, blessings for technology inventions, I guess. Uh, But yeah, that was just the reality that was put in and yeah, it was awful. Um, So we did three weeks of being in Austin and then we were, I was flown to Houston and that's where I had the rest of my stay. I think I was still in ICU for like a total of five months. And that was a relief because I finally was getting like all all of the the stickers, the stickies off my chest. The that's attached all to the monitors. The and things, yes, yeah. it was finally a relief. It was it was a very interesting world. It was very sad. All the all the details are really rough. Sure, but yeah, it was crazy. I'm glad I just remember sitting there and being like, God, I just want this to be over. I want it to be even a year from now. For me I like to cut the corners where I can, <laughs> if you will. I was like, God, if it's just a year from now, that'll be great. <laughs> um, just because I knew it was gonna be a long year in front of me with prosthetic care and like walking and you know, but people are able to adapt and move forward and Yeah, so I didn't get my amputations until I think my third month into the hospital stay.
1: Okay, so you were well aware that that was going to happen.
0: Yes. So only three weeks of semi medicated coma. After that, they were telling me it's meningococcal septicemia. I remember hearing that and being like, I'm going to learn, learn that word later. <laughs> and basically, I, in the beginning, they were saying they're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be like one foot. Oh, it looks like it's both feet. Oh, your fingers. Oh, now it's. It could be above the knee. They were actually saying it's going to be above the knees and at my elbow, at my forearms. Luckily, I have a very stubborn Mexican mother who was like, No, (laughs) (laughs) that will not happen. (laughs) And so she bought me time because, you know, who knows how different my story would be if I didn't have a mother like that. And we were able to save as much as we did because I do have thumbs. Thumbs are great, you guys. Uh, I know people who have their hand but no thumbs Mm -hmm. not even like one appendage and uh, it's a huge difference of dexterity and you know i'm grateful for these little baby thumbs that i have yeah Yeah, so it's been a interesting wild ride people adapt and i'm yeah i'm curious to hear about how it happened for you if it's just like the whole I oh, don't know. It's just like a whole new reality. It's a whole life-changing experience. I went from like a totally normal, healthy student to in a wheelchair, a new amputee. I lost most of my hair, and I was about eighty pounds, and that was because I wasn't eating. I was on two feed when I was in the hospital.
1: Yeah, that's always fun. I was. I had a I had a tube myself. That's good stuff. Yeah,
0: good stuff. Yeah. So. Got out of the hospital and actually I didn't start walking until a couple months later because I still had wounds on my leg so it's not good to like start it's mm-hmm. not good to be walking as an amputee if you have wounds but yeah it's an interesting life but a lot of wonderful wonderful things have come out of it and it's hard you know every now and then I'll get that question of like if you could go back and all this all these wonderful things that you've done Never happened in your able body, would you take it it's very it's a very tough question, you know, like um I think I've been grateful and blessed in so many ways of meeting so many wonderful people that it would be ridiculous to say anything otherwise, mm-hmm. so yeah, I am very lucky, and my mental state, as my husband would argue differently, is completely there
1: yeah, I can understand that too. I have some people that would would argue with me on that one. Yes, uh, but you didn't know anything about meningitis before you had meningitis. Correct. Yeah, I didn't either.
0: Yeah, I wish I wish I knew. I remember going to camp and they asked about if I had it, and I said yes because I was in middle school and I did have it at the time. But I didn't need to have it for school, and that's why we created that law to protect college students. And it was later amended in 2011, and it included all college students entering the state of Texas universities, period. And ever since then, there hasn't been an outbreak of meningitis since.
1: Well, that's interesting. So in 2011, it was amended to, so it's required for anybody entering college to have have, uh, all three... Shots, the the two ACWY?
0: So when you are going into college, there's two separate vaccines. And one of them will cover one strain, which is B, and one of them will cover the other four strains, ACWY. And the meningitis B one is given only right before college. And then... The ACW is also given right before college, but that's like the second round as the booster because you got your first one in middle school. Okay. But yeah, if you get both of those B and then the other one for ACW and Y strains, you'll be covered by all five vaccine-preventable groups. So,
1: Do you know which strain you had?
0: Yes, I had C. And at the time, there was a vaccine that was available... They could have helped prevent this from happening. So I just try to help out other students to, you know, have this law because they're, you know, students are like, oh, I have to do this. I know I would be like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, but then they can continue living their invincible lives and still be like ungrateful for medical advancements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, just living their invincible lives. That's what I want everyone to do. But, you know, to also be grateful for what we have. It's a, you know, it's 2021. There's so many great medical advancements out there today. And it's a shame for us to not take advantage for, of it. At least that's my opinion.
1: Oh, I, I I, agree with that. So yes. this happened in 2008 into
0: 2009.
1: When I got sick. Yeah. Yes, in 2008. And again, we're glossing over a lot of things that happened there um but it wasn't too far after that were, were you into cycling before meningitis or is it yes.
0: something um casually not like competitively i'd never had bike shorts ever before and you never had bike shorts it. no i just had as i just had my bike as a commuter use because in austin it's just such a bike friendly town and yeah. that's how i got to campus and I actually still have my bike. So now my husband's bike that I used before getting sick. But yeah, getting out of the hospital, I didn't think I would do that again. You know, that's just me being naive and like privileged with my fully able body. And you just don't realize how many wonderful adaptive athletes are out there and how impressive, you know, the human body is. I think, you know, think about anyone who like broke an arm. Yeah, it's really frustrating at first. We use our arms so much, but then after like a week, we learn how to like use our arms for in different ways, and it's just the way that people adapt. But yeah, so cycling came to me not naturally, not as easy as the phrase going as a, as the phrase is. What do they say? It's like for riding a bike. You never remember. forget
1: to, cool. how to ride a bicycle or something.
0: Exactly, and so it's not that easy. Um, well, I, I
1: sure, was, sure. When you when you try to ride it a different way it probably creates some, yes. some challenges sure.
0: Yes Uh, one for one thing how to get used to like being an amputee on prosthetic legs it is in some ways like wearing stilts but like imagine wearing stilts and driving and or wearing stilts and riding a bike and or wearing stilts and sitting down on a couch like th- these are all different balances that as amputees we learn how to you know learn. Yeah. But yeah, I got on a bike. So the story is in 2008 I got sick, 2009 I got on my prosthetic legs. 2010 I got on my bicycle for the first time and then 2011 I found myself on the USA Paralympic cycling team. So just things happen. That's
1: pretty dramatic. Uh, that's I mean, that, that's incredible. That's tremendous, I should say.
0: It was I was I was and still am very surprised that that is my story. Like right now, I'm I'm like I'm in my closet because it's like my sound booth, and I'm like staring at my old Nike USA apparel right in front of my face. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. So, walk me through the cycling. Was it? Why did you start cycling? Is it because you just wanted to cycle, or were you?
0: Um, I think I just had really determined occupational therapists. <laughs> yeah, okay. so his name is one arm bob his name is bob but he has one arm and um he was a us paralympian cyclist as well so he has some connections he knew how to like to get yeah, me involved and he knew that i was into biking but now using the term cycling <laughs> and yes. and it was it was great so basically how did it happen so in 2010 i got on a bike for the first time and then about a couple bike rides later, I found myself at the Liv- the Livestrong mm-hmm. Lance Armstrong bike ride, doing twelve miles, and with a couple other thousand people. And yeah, w- when I did that, it was such a huge achievement considering like what the you know past shitty years have been like. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was the biggest smile I've had, and probably since I got sick at that point.
1: And that's before Lance told everybody he was cheating. So it was all, it was great anyway.
0: It was bliss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: so I'm kidding, but uh, okay. So the the prosthetic leg thing would be interesting from the cycling perspective. But for me, the more even interesting thing is how are you holding on to the handles?
0: Yeah. So yeah, you need fingers to break because the brakes are on the other side of the handlebars well forget breaking
1: i'm just thinking how are you i just put my
0: weight on it i still have the palms of my hands i was just like imagine holding a handle without fingers it's like palming it basically
1: yeah but i'm I, i understand that but i'm thinking like if you hit a bump or something that that you it seems like it'd be really easy to lose control of the of the front wheel
0: it's actually not. The only times I've like lost control was just like making a turn on gravel path, and, you know, eating shit and like tearing holes in my prosthetic leg. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, um, with my hands, I, I definitely feel like I have a good amount of control. So how do you um, brake then? So the brakes are on. They're flipped on to my side of the handlebars, not away from me, mm-hmm. but towards me. Mm-hmm. But they're attached. They're There's really nothing different. They're loosened, the brakes, and by their brakes, I mean they're like, as in to like put the brake handle onto my bike, they just flip it, they rotate it inward, Mm -hmm. and that's the only difference between my bike and your bike. Um, And you're able to use
1: your, uh, your thumb to work it?
0: Yes. So they like adapted it to make a simpler brake, where basically I only have one brake, and they it's called a split brake, and basically, when I push down on it, they will it will break the back wheel first and then the front wheel second, mm-hmm. so I don't flip over mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't have that cool prosthetic leg that completely isn't a foot at all. it's like a bar to the pedal. I don't have that that would be cool. I have seen it before, but I just have my prosthetic foot and a cycling shoe <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's cool.
1: Whatever works, right. yeah,
0: yeah. But nowadays, like, I don't really cycle as much uh, on the road. I can't even tell you the last time I've been on the road. But I do have a Peloton, and it gives me joy. I love it, you Peloton. I, I you know, we sound like addicts, don't we? I sh- I, I really <laughs> should.
1: I, speaking of the biking and cycling thing, I I recently just started biking again myself. So I used to bike. I used to bike. You know, I'm not using the word cycle. I used to bike yeah. as a, as a youngster, and and even in college, I had a bike and just goofing around and that kind of stuff. But yeah, um, with the vision loss, biking is is challenging. Of course. Um, so um, I have enough vision to be dangerous. Yes. And we have some uh, children, some small children, and we started getting into biking with them.
0: Cute. And
1: and one of them really took off on the bike. And my wife and I are looking at each other like, man, we, okay, we, we're gonna have to, we're get gonna to get her. We're gonna have to, we're gonna <laughs> have to get some bikes to keep up with them because previously on foot, everything was fine. And so we got, my wife got a bike and I didn't even think anything of it about getting one for myself. Cause I haven't ridden a bike at this point for 20 plus years. And she got a bike. And one day I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take it for a spin. And I did. And within a few months, uh, I had a bike and, and I'm back, I'm biking. So nice. it, as Just we so said, like now, like ago, you,
0: could, you could quickly be on the U S Paralympic cycling team. You well, really I may need
1: to talk to your buddy, Bob and see how <laughs> yeah how that works. But, Seriously. um, it, it is true that you, uh, you never forget how to ride a bike, even if you have to do some adaptation to, uh, to do it again. So that's one of the things it's, it's, um, exhilarating uh from second uh to second and terrifying from second yeah, to second as far as being totally. able to make sure I know where I'm going and what I'm doing but
0: like literally I will do my best to never fall and I probably have only fallen like 3 times out of like a decade and uh, because I have the most fragile knees of all time that I'm worried that they'll like explode mm. <laughs> and so um but yeah that's also due to the meningitis because when I got sick the Necrotic tissue got so high above my knees that my knee covering my kneecap was like completely exposed, and it was actually like one of the reasons why I was in the hospital for so long because um the skin grafting was just so severe all over my body and by my body, mainly my legs that had the skin grafting but mm. yeah, so I am very cautious of like making sure I do not fall <laughs> um but yeah you know people adapted and it's, but you know with the cycling team there are two different teammates that i had that were on the team that were visually impaired okay and they had one was completely blind actually and one was visually impaired and they did tandem and their driver was you know visually abled mm-hmm. and we're steering it but you know okay. it was awesome i love yeah. being part of the team and just seeing all these different body types and like them like just being badasses, you know, just like defeating all odds, and we're all here like being subtly cool in our country's you know apparel and representing mm-hmm. our own country and living in the village it's crazy it
1: was yeah wonderful. so the the visual thing is uh, i mean technically i'm I'm blind, but the visual impairment is really a very wide spectrum, I bet um. I'm completely blind in in my right eye and I have 2300 vision in my left and that that makes me visually or uh, that makes me legally blind right which just means I I don't have a driver's license Um, I did for about three years so I I do I do know what that's like but Mm -hmm. um, since meningitis have not but vision is really hard to describe Uh, even people that have similar clinical clinically defined vision can have different Field yeah, of I've visions and ranges curious. and and darkness and lightness and shadows and it it's really hard which which is one of the reasons why I'm doing the podcast um is just to kind of explain educate uh, my vision and and about vision and vision loss and stuff so I've talked to a lot of people that have that have been in the in the spectrum of vision loss as well and just just trying to kind of talk through it but um
0: right it's no I love it's it not, it's, it's not easy I'm to, to really
1: there's not there's not a one size fits all for visual impairment.
0: Right. Uh, There was the guy that was completely blind. I think he could see light, like just like if it was bright out, Mm -hmm. like he could tell. And then the other girl, like she had an iPhone and but she like had a huge font and all that stuff. And I got to see a different world, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, technology has really helped things like that for the visually impaired community. Uh, I imagine technology has a lot to do with with things that help you, too.
0: Yeah, with prosthetic care, uh, thank God it's not the 70s and I don't have, like, wooden legs. I'm grateful. <laughs> but, yeah, who knows? I could, like, be droning with my prosthetic legs in, like, two years probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. Um, currently, I just live in Austin, currently looking for good big girl jobs. And, but in the meantime, I still work for a pharmaceutical company and I do advocacy work, work. I think the campaign that they're pushing for is called "Ask." Gosh, well, definitely check out MeningitisB.com. dot com. That's um from the pharmaceutical company that I work with, with GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, and I've been working with them since two thousand fifteen, and they've been delightful, and I've been able to like pass a uh, pass a couple of legislations with them, and also have great speaking opportunities, like Doctor Phil and spoken to all across the country you know i've i've worked with i think three different pharmaceutical companies since and i'm about three no five states away from seeing all the states in in the country
1: okay i was going to ask you about your travels with just the the paralympic things and then all the meningitis stuff so when you say five states away that's five states away with the meningitis stuff
0: From seeing all 50 states, yeah. I would say primarily with meningitis stuff, for sure. Okay. Because before I got sick, I've probably only been to, like, five states. I wasn't really (laughs) well-traveled. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I I definitely was well-traveled. I mean, I know people who aren't. But, yeah, I mean, now it's just, like, it's crazy. Like, I can watch a movie and see an airport and know what airport it is. Mm. (laughs) It's a, I don't know, blessing. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) So
1: where are the coolest places you've been with with the meningitis stuff as far as travel?
0: Um, I've been to London and I did a global campaign there. I also was in Canada with that global campaign. And then I went. It's funny, like anytime I go somewhere cool, like just on my personal preference, I will reach out to the GSK offices to see if I could do any work. But yeah, so I was in New Zealand and I asked to speak at their office and they were happy to do that. And I met with a couple government officials. I don't even know if that's what you say, a New Zealand government. I don't even know. Um, sounds and okay to me. Yeah, sounds sounds about right. And it was great and wonderful. And I always say like anywhere that I can tell my story is just any new listener is a new educated person on meningitis
1: yeah there's respect nothing respect. there's nothing bad about that
0: right, right but yeah, I've been doing a bunch of traveling, just have a few left. It's like maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Kentucky, North Dakota, Alaska, and that's it
1: Well, I think there's a lot of people that probably have North Dakota on their list of places to go yeah, especially <laughs> in I the did winter. a
0: road trip I did a road trip to Montana, and that's where I like I knocked out a lot of my states yeah and It was awesome, but I was, like, I don't know, 50 miles from North Dakota. I should have just, like, done a detour and knock it out. Now I have to make the trek to go to North Dakota just to say I've been there.
1: (laughs) Okay, so we were both kind of got meningitis at the same point in our lives. Sophomores in college. And we both spent some time away from college. I was away from college for... um, Maybe two semesters? No, I... I got sick in February. I went home and I was trying everything I could to get back to school by the fall. Oh, in wow. August. So, and that, that's what I did. And, but you know, I gloss over a lot of things. I've talked about it before, but you and I have a lot of different things yeah. that happened to us. And we had a lot of different therapies and things that, that had to happen. But for me, I walking was an issue. I left the the hospital in a wheelchair. I came mm-hmm. home in a wheelchair um, because I, my muscular wise, yeah, my body was just cheated. totally out the to lunch, and nothing was working. Yeah. My, yeah. my facial muscles, I was using. I was on a feeding tube. I had mm-hmm. I had issues swallowing. I couldn't I couldn't yeah. drink anything that was less than a certain viscosity. It had to be. I had to use this powder called Thicket for like, oh, great. For like anything you wanted to drink. Awesome. It had to have this like thickening agent in it, like gelatinous thing to make it so I wouldn't wouldn't choke on it and i can i can't even begin to tell you how frustrating that was all i really wanted to do was just drink a glass of cold water i just water. wanted to feel that sensation uh, of dr- just drinking like- cold water and it just i couldn't exactly. and it was it was terrible so learning how to walk i'm going to physical therapy learning how, learning how to smile learning how to talk learning how to stand learning how to sit all the just basic basic human functions and then of course there was all the social things and the getting around things and then learning how to be visually impaired and how to get around and all those adaptations and things but my main objective was i, I need to get out of the house and get back to school and back on my own and just I, i'm gonna figure this out and it was uh <laughs> i can i can remember going back to school um i think i I think I signed up for three, two or three classes. The first fall semester, I went back. The first one that I actually went to was uh, reading, (laughs) which really was a bad choice because you shouldn't send the guy that's newly blind into a (laughs) reading. That's comedy. Yeah, so I can just remember sitting in that class on the first day and thinking, "This is how's this This going to work? This this is (laughs) yeah." So, um, Uh, as
0: easy as I once thought it was, yeah, no, it's crazy.
1: And as I've mentioned before too, I didn't, I didn't have any friends that were blind. I didn't have any, any friends that had those types of things happen in their life. So right. I was kind of like a, a square peg in a round hole again, or yeah. trying to fit into a, a, the round hole that I was used to. And it just, it wasn't the same. So there was a, a giant learning curve, um, yes, just, just, for me too. just physically functioning one, but two trying to be in school and then trying to be social and and somewhat normal and and all those kind of things. So I I suspect that was similar for you.
0: Yes, so I got sick in November and we had a really good relationship with the university. And they were like, okay, she didn't finish her semester, but we'll let her have the ability to finish the semester by the end of the following semester. But I was literally had no fingers, like fresh amputee. How am I going to like press buttons, hold a pencil? I don't even know how to hold any utensils at this point. Mm-hmm. So I think those classes did get dropped, but they did hold my place at the university. And when I got out of the hospital, it was May. And I think I was back at the student service. What do you call oh, Man, I'm so glad I'm not in school anymore. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't. I wasn't the advisor. My advisor. So what do you say? Yeah. And I was crying because I did not want to go back to school yet because I was in a wheelchair. Not because I was in a wheelchair. Just because everything was so new, I didn't feel ready. And my, I had the toughest love. You know, my stubborn Mexican mother being like, "You need to go back to school. They saved your place." And and so. I lost that battle and I had to go back to school. I mean, I was down to go, but not as quickly as they made me go. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't start wearing prosthetics until August. So I was fully dependent on my family to get around in a wheelchair. They, you know, they park the car, they pull the wheelchair up to the, the seat. I slowly pull myself onto the wheelchair. I am capable of pushing my wheelchair, but then like with notes and it was just such a not my ideal, not my sexiest moment. Sure. And, but then when I did start wearing prosthetics onto campus, so now here comes that my first full semester, I think I was only taking three classes. The teachers were really flexible. I mean, how could you not be flexible to a freshly new amputee Mm -hmm. student? (laughs) And they actually let me just do my class on my own. And, if I wanted to come into office hours, which I did, I went to every office hours and would just go over everything. And then the spring semester, I was a full-time student. You know, in the beginning, I, I wanted those prosthetic legs. They're called covered legs. So they're a prosthetic leg that have, like, plaster over it. And then they're, like, painted and they made to look like your legs. Mm-hmm. I worked really really hard because I didn't like being a stigma. It couldn't be more apparent as the girl who is dependent on a uh what do you call it, staircase railing because I could not just walk upstairs so easily. So it, when all these students are like breaking out of class and they're like a waterfall down the stairwell, like I'm holding on to the, to the damn like railing be like, "No, I am not budging. Like you get you get around me. I am not moving." And then, like, all the handicap spots are, like, front row, and so everyone's staring at me in these 300-seater rooms. Like, I just hated the stigma. Mm -hmm. I hated being stared at. I hated it. I was so aware of it. I would look into, as I would get into my car, I would look into the reflection and see how many people were staring at me. Like, I just hated it. But I think it was just a transitional period how obviously like I really don't think people stare at me as stare at me as much as they did I think it was just such a I felt uncomfortable and I think people saw that versus now where I'm like really thriving really feeling myself i go pick up coffee with my app so I don't talk to anybody and I feel really cool <laughs> um but yeah you know in the, In some ways, like I go, I get to go incognito by wearing pants and then really nobody sees me and people might be wondering, why don't you wear pants all the time? You try putting pants on a mannequin without fingers. It is very hard. (laughs) Like my legs are stiff. Um, I have to scrunch my pants to get them over the ankles. Ankles are nice, everybody. You get to point and put your pants on Mm -hmm. and I don't have the plaster legs because they are heavier. So I use regular prosthetics because they're just more comfortable. And then I also don't wear pants because it's just such a pain in the butt just to put them on. And I'm very comfortable just being who I am. It took me a while to get here. I would say it took me about a year for me to be comfortable being outside. And if I got stared at, like, whatever. It took me a year to get to that point, but, you know, it was really tough being out like in a huge, I went to the University of Texas at Austin where there's so many people there. It was 50,000, 55,000 undergrad students.
1: Yeah, that's a big campus.
0: It was just overwhelming. But, you know, as I say how much insecurity as I have, I'm also like a huge public speaker. I remember the University of Texas at our commencement ceremony. They're highlighting me as a student. Because I'm awesome. I mean, I'm a student that got sick with meningitis, survived, went back to school, did the the Paralympic thing, passed a law. And so they're sharing my story. And I remember talking to the president of the university being like, can I share my story? And he was like, uh, no. And I was like, okay. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I'm very proud and bashful and grateful and all of the things. But I'm also very a huge, humble person. Like I love watching Real Housewives of anything and snuggling my dog and my husband. Yeah. That's what makes me happy. I'm sure those things make a lot of people happy too. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been an interesting wild ride. I, I feel like my advocacy, while I'll always be down to share my story is kind of like coming to this transitional phase of like, I won't be on the platform as much just because I got to get my big girl job out there. And, you know, I always I don't know if other people do this, but almost every day I look at certain moments and I know that these moments are not going to be here forever. Like, I look at my dog and I'm like, I know I I enjoy the moment for what it is. Like, I'm almost like looking in the moment like it's the future, like from the future like, and appreciate this now because you won't have it later. And, like, even with my advocacy work, like, I'm I'm appreciative of it now because I don't know if I'll always have these opportunities. So mm-hmm. I'm grateful for the moment, you know?
1: You've channeled a lot of that advocacy into a, a group that you founded, I think, pretty close to day one, maybe even, the Jamie group?
0: Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of what all started it all. So when I was in the hospital we met with some people and they were wanting to testify and wanting us to testify. And that's kind of how we got into it because um, you know, that law tried to get passed two other times before. I'm sure even for you to hear that, that might be tough because
1: yeah, it is.
0: Yeah. Because you know, this law could have helped, you know, prevented a couple of things for us. And unfortunately stories is what makes the, the page turn the ball roll and so you know I'm glad I could take one for the team I guess I don't know and so yeah we started a nonprofit organization it's very grassroots it's like me and my mom and my brother every now and then but you know we just it's mainly an educational platform and Hopefully, you know, with your story, we'll be able to share it on our platform, our website. It hasn't been updated in a long time, but definitely share it on our social media accounts. But nonetheless, we, I think, what our main things that we do is that we push for legislation. Right now in Texas, there's the Parents' Right to Know, which is a law that we're trying to help pass into Senate or from the House to the Senate and to be signed by the governor. Basically, it's a law where Let's say you have a child that's immune compromised and they're going to a school, but they want to know the vaccine rates of that school. So if they have high vaccine rates, then they would feel more comfortable for their child to go there. Mm -hmm. So I think Texas is one of the few states that does not have this. And it's very frustrating. Like I would see it in California and it's just so beautiful, the websites. With all the schools saying like which ones are vaccinated and like where they are and it's just awesome. But yeah, Texas is a little behind on a couple of things, but aren't we all? But Mm -hmm. yeah, so the Jamie Group has been great. It stands for Joint Advocacy and Meningococcal Information and Education. My name worked out. I don't know how. It did work out
1: pretty good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, another platform. It's great.
1: And it's the jamiegroup.org? Is that right? Yes. Yes. And you accept donations and things like that?
0: So, yeah, we'll take donations we'll usually push something around World Meningitis Day, which is April 24th. So, definitely, in you know, a good time to be, you know, sharing the story. And if people are able to do donations, that'd be great. Basically, it just helps us provide more educational tools to local communities. So, I'll go to like doctor's offices and put up information packets because you know that's the number one thing that happens when you're waiting in a doctor's room you are reading what's on the walls Mm -hmm. so hopefully we'll just like put some posters up and do that
1: well there's a lot of great information at the website the jamiegroup.org that's how i found you and there's some a lot of media things videos and other things that you've done and it's it's tremendous so i will encourage people to go to the jamiegroup.org to learn more about you.
0: Yeah, thank you. No, I've been really grateful for all of this. So thank you for having me. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.